So I'm Adam Apollo, and for those of you that uh, don't know me, um, I have been on a long journey in discovering the universe. When I was a teenager, I began to really, really question everything that I was taught in school. And I had this feeling like my teachers were lying to me. I had this feeling that there was something missing, something wrong in the structure of the way my reality was being taught to me. And I couldn't shake this nagging feeling that there was some huge gap in all of the sciences. Whether I was studying biology, or whether I was studying earth sciences, or whether I was looking at mathematics, there was always something nagging at me, something missing. I found it in chemistry class, I found it and all kinds of science courses. And I'd sit and contemplate what that thing could possibly be. I had an experience with one of my friends who he and I would just kind of poke holes at unanswerable questions. Like, how is it that you feel it when somebody's looking at you from across the room? How is this possible? Nobody ever gave us the answer to this. Nobody in school or in science says, oh, well, this is exactly the mechanism for how that happens. How is it that you can sometimes feel it when somebody's talking about you? The ears burning phenomenon that everybody seems to just recognize, and yet there's no context for it. It's completely missing from our science, our studies, and our general reality. My friend and I began a process of inquiry into some of these things and in that process and experimentation I found and discovered that my body has a resonant field around it and I realized that this resonant field around my body was something that is extremely tactile it's something that anyone can feel anyone can experience I went back into high school after having the first experience of this which was done by simply putting my fingers together, slowly separating them, and looking at the space between them. When you bounce my hands in and out, I could feel the pressure. I could feel a magnetic field like sticking between my fingertips. The more I bounced, the more tingles that I felt in my fingers. You feel free to do this at any point during my talk to explore this feeling for yourself if you haven't done it before but I could see something there. I could see a smoky field traveling between my fingertips and suddenly I felt like I just discovered the force. I had this massive feeling of importance. Something about this experience right here was part of the key to unlock all the doors that were locked. All the pieces that were missing in the puzzle were hidden inside this phenomenon, and I knew it. I went back to school and I took a friend and I was like, dude, just feel this on your arm, you know, like notice, and ran it along a guy's arm. He was like, whoa, what is that, man? Like, ah, you haven't experienced that before, have you? No one ever told you about that, did they? <laughs> and I began testing it. Could I point at someone from across the room you know, and wiggle my finger enough to where they feel some subtle, tiny little shift and turn around. 
I started testing, like, what is it when you're looking at someone? You must be transmitting some kind of energy from your eyes across the room. You're having an effect through space. And then what happens when somebody, like you think of somebody, and then the phone rings. We didn't have cell phones when I was in high school. We had landline phones. But it still happened. I'd, I'd think about somebody, and then sure enough, they were calling on the phone. My mom answers. She's like, Adam. I'm like, huh, that's crazy. So somehow, the intention to call somebody is passing through space-time. There's got to be some kind of physics for this. And so I started diving in to the depth of our understandings of reality. And I started looking for where is this? Why isn't it, why isn't it well known? How come people don't know about this stuff? And I started noticing that I could feel different kinds of structures in this field. Sometimes it'd feel like fire, sometimes it'd feel like water, sometimes it'd feel like earth or air. I noticed that there was sort of natural patterns maybe just like works in nature, is also happening in this vibrational field that's part of my body, that I can feel inside of my body when I get flushed with heat like fire, or I suddenly get cool and wet like water. And I, as I began to explore and look up different things uh, around elements and energy and stuff, I started finding different traditions around the planet. The first one I found was Wicca. I had no idea what Wicca was, but in Wicca they were talking about focusing an intention for different kinds of energies to move. I was like, that is fascinating. And then they're communicating with the natural world through fire, through air, through earth, and through water. You want the rain to come, you do a very specific ritual in which you're looking at something that represents the land in which you live, and you apply water to it. And you're seeing that happening as rain. You want the wind to come, you blow with your breath on something that will blow like a leaf and witness it move. And there's some kind of connection that they were working on between themselves and the natural world. I thought this was fascinating. And I thought, wow, wait, you mean magic is like a real thing? I was in high school, right? I'm like, whoa, that's, what a concept. Okay, that's crazy. And I noticed that I could move energy in different ways. I could feel different kinds of things in my body whenever I allowed myself to be soft enough, just like my hands doing an experiment, to be soft enough to feel and sense a charge moving through me. And then I discovered Tai Chi. I realized that for thousands of years, there are at least a couple thousand years, there have been people practicing the movement Tai chi of energy in their bodies. And then I realized that all the meridian sciences were sciences about the pathways of how this field of force moves through the body. And then I discovered that yoga is also a practice of this and that people, you know, all over the world that have practiced yoga and people in India that have done it for thousands of years, they talk about prana and that prana is a field of force moving through the body. And then I realized there's the odic force and there's all these different names for this field. And yet it's missing in the biology. It's missing in the earth sciences. 
It's missing in all of my classes at school. How come they're not teaching me about this? What is going on here? What's the problem? So I was like, well, maybe they just don't know about it in physics yet. So all I need to do is dig into physics. And if I dig deep enough into the physics, I'll see if anybody has had any kind of intuitions or insights into this area. So I decided to do my senior project in high school um, on this phenomenon. And I was gonna dive deep into this study. And my senior project was called um, The Unification of Science and Spirituality Through Unified Field Theoretics. And the books that I got to start with were a book called The Elegant Universe, Brian Greene, about string theory. Because I noticed that there's a vibrational quality to this field, right? Maybe string theory's got it. I also picked up a book called Three Roads to Quantum Gravity. I was not really sure why I got that one. There's something about the cover, something about the feel of it like struck me. But that book answered more questions for me and put more pieces of the puzzle together than anything I had experienced thus far. In that book, Lee Smolin addresses the fundamental connection between gravity at the largest scales, the big scales, planetary and galactic scales, and gravity at the quantum scale, the microcosmic scale. And in the initial equations that he figured out with his team in the 1980s, where they literally came up with equations for how gravity could work at a microcosmic scale, at the scale of atoms, you know, protons and neutrons, and this equation suggested that space-time is a discrete structure. That there's not an empty background that particles float around in. It suggests that there's a structure to space and time itself. Now what's really interesting about this is that you would think that that insight would be obvious, right? Because if any of you guys know about Einstein's work, you know, Einstein was saying that basically, in his theory of general relativity, that mass can curve space-time, and that gravity is just the curvature of space-time. This suggests that space-time is a thing, right? But we lost that idea that space-time is a thing. And I didn't find the answer to that. I didn't realize what exactly happened for many, many years after that. But I was initially fascinated by this idea that space-time is a thing, that there's a structure to it, that there's a geometry to it. And I thought it was pretty interesting that many of these ancient cultures that I was looking into, from Wicca and their five-pointed star pentagram with the five elements, to Chinese medicine, which also has the five-pointed star, but all in balanced elements, part of a six-element system, to Judaism and Kabbalah, which has a six-pointed star and different symbolisms and meanings and energies around that, to even Christianity, which has a seven-pointed star representing the seven virtues and the seven sins, and it's also an older Celtic symbol. And then you have all the Celtic knotworks, which represent different geometries and shapes and structures. And I started thinking, what if space-time itself 
is made of these geometries. And what if these different geometries that these people have seen in a spiritual context, in a religious context, in a sacred context, are actually mirrors of the geometries that are actually occurring in the fabric of space-time itself? My next deep dive was into the chakras. Because when I discovered the chakras, I found insights that each chakra was a different geometry. Now I'm into computers and I have been since I was in high school. I was a hacker when I was a freshman in high school learning how to hack systems and pick locks and um, turn on and off phone lines and things like this. We're going to delete this part from the recording. Um, <laughs> and so I started thinking about the chakras as like different kinds of ports. Maybe our root chakra, if it's connected to our physical body, is like a power cable. Maybe our sacral chakra is like, you know, a USB, universal serial bus, you know, like transmitting all kinds of different frequency data, emotional data. Maybe the solar plexus is like firewire, you know, like, I mean, take your, you can take your pick and you can move up through the system. You've got monitors, you know, you've got these different aspects that are connecting to, receiving, and transmitting with the surrounding space, right? And I started to think that maybe different geometries have different kinds of quality in terms of how they interact with space. When I started diving into that, I found Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller I think he'd already got it. He just, he just got the whole picture already. He said that gravitational fields will one day be, no be simply seen as great circles in geodesic structures. Okay. <laughs> what he's saying is that gravity, which is the curvature of space-time, is space-time in a geodesic structure that's curving that you could use a geodesic structure to describe the curvature of space-time. That made sense to me. He also said that tetrahedron is like a fundamental structure of space-time because of the triangle, right? The triangle is this most solid thing. It's incredibly solid, it's incredibly stable. It's always in balance, all the three pieces together. So when you go three-dimensionally like a tetrahedron, you end up with this fundamental unit of structure and you can actually take the tetrahedrons and you can add them up in whole number ratios and get all the platonic solids. Fascinating. You can't do that with a cube, right? And so as I dove into Bucky's work, I realized, hey, wait a second. Here's some of the geometries. If you look at a dome, how many of you guys have been inside of a dome before? You've been in a dome, you look, and at the very top in the center of the dome, What's the geometry you see? It's a five. Five triangles coming together. And if you look in all the other points all the way around down the dome, most of it is six triangles coming together. Hexagons, right? Six-pointed stars. The Judaic Star of David. <laughs> the Kabbalic Field of Force, right? And the five-pointed stars, the pentacle is, you know, Wicca, etc. 
and all around a hemisphere, like you could say it's like where the Tropic of Cancer is on the Earth, you have five different points, and exactly five in every dome, where you have five pointed junctures in that dome. So when you look into a dome, there's six points, five around a ring, and one at the top that are fives, and the rest are sixes. And those fives, however close together they are, determines how small the dome is. If they're further apart, the dome gets bigger. So these little five-pointed zones, these mediate the level of curvature of the dome. And I started thinking, maybe, maybe the five is actually the structure that creates gravity. Because if Einstein said that the curvature of space-time itself is what gravity is, and if space-time is some kind of fundamental energetic lattice, if it's full of energy, as many have said, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a bit, then it's going to want to be in balance with that energy. So if it's full of nodes of energy, those energies are going to want to be in balance. How are they going to be in balance? They're going to form triangles. They're going to form tetrahedra. But if they all form triangles, and all those triangles are in complete balance, then you don't have any curvature. It was around this time that I discovered Nassim Hermain's work. He had done a paper that added spin to Einstein's field equations. Because the way he was thinking about it is that how is it that you've got all this stuff in the universe and all we're doing is static equations for the curvature of space? I mean, the atoms are spinning, the Earth is spinning, the Sun is spinning, the galaxy is spinning. We're spinning! <laughs> Where's the spin? And so he was adding spin to these equations and he also had this really interesting insight that tetrahedrons might be the fundamental structure of space-time itself. And I was like, ah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's Bucky's thought, that's what I'm thinking. I like this guy, I'm gonna track this guy, let's find out what he's up to. And he had this idea that there was maybe a way you could stack tetrahedrons together and he came up with this thing called the 64 tetrahedral matrix which he thought of as like a fundamental unit of space-time. And I thought that's really cool. That's a really cool idea. And I also, even at that time, noticed that there's a problem with that. 64 tetrahedral matrix, or in fact any tetrahedral matrix, if in complete equilibrium, means there's absolutely zero curvature, which means there's absolutely zero gravity. And let me ask you a question. Where in the universe is there no gravity? Black holes bend light, suck in stars, chew them up. There's a lot of gravity there, right? I mean, around the black hole. Is there gravity inside a black hole? Is space-time curved inside of a black hole? That's a deeper question. 
But in general, how is the Earth hanging out around the sun? Gravity. How's the sun hanging out around the galaxy? Gravity. <laughs> How's the galaxy hanging out in the galactic cluster? Gravity. <laughs> Where's the Launiakea cluster's flow happening from? Gravity. Where in the universe is there no gravity? Where is there no curvature at all? Not really many places. And so I realized you need to have an understanding of how the curvature is happening at a fundamental level. How space-time itself is warping and weaving. And I think that Buckminster Fuller had the right solution. He just didn't unpack it very much. It was just like one of those things where it's like one of those cards from Bucky Fuller from a quote in the middle of synergetics where out of nowhere he like sees the future and he understands and knows how we're going to solve all of the equations of gravity and how we're going to understand space-time itself. I mean, that's the way Bucky was. He'd just come up with certain ideas that you read it and your mind just goes... <laughs> because we, it's taken us years and years to break through and come through each of the layers of Bucky's work to really understand the complexity and depth of what he said. Has anybody here picked up Synergetics and tried to read it? Wow. <laughs> you can look it up online, synergetics.info. The whole book's online for free. Just Pick a chapter, any chapter, try to read it. It's really fun. <laughs> I highly encourage that as your homework for this evening. Yes? Are you saying then as we're responding to all the gravity is all balanced to the great point mm. where it's balanced between the Earth, the Sun, and everything else? Mm. Are you saying that there, uh, where you could put a spacecraft and it would just I'm not going to jump that far yet, Paul, so just stick with me and, and we'll, we'll make our way into the stars shortly. Um, but what I am saying is that there is a natural field and structure to space-time itself, and everywhere we experience gravity, there is curvature in space-time, right? So let's, at this stage, at this point, you know, I, I started seeing that there's a connection between all of these things. There's a connection between the five and gravity Interestingly enough, with the root chakra, huh, physicality, right? I started discovering, you know, Dan Winter's work. Actually, while I was still in high school, I found Dan Winter. And Dan Winter's work, he describes the five as being absolutely essential for gravity, for life, for everything. Because he saw that the pattern and structure of our DNA, which, you know, in general, it's usually when we're, you know, studying our DNA, the turn of one turn of our DNA to the width of our DNA is the phi ratio. Uh, phi in this case meaning the golden mean ratio. Now when plants grow, most plants spread out their leaves and branches at around the golden mean ratio to each other or a Fibonacci sequence, uh, which is also an approximation of the golden mean ratio. Um, nautilus shells grow in the golden mean ratio. Spiral galaxies are in the golden mean ratio. Um, and we see this pattern of the golden mean showing up in everything from pine cones to trees to living objects of all kinds. And what's really interesting about this from Dan Winter's perspective is the idea that somehow the, the golden mean ratio allows for energy at any scale to compress and go smaller and smaller and smaller all the way down to infinity. And it also allows energy to expand from a point 
to an infinitely large shape. So I thought, well, that's fascinating because then if space-time curvature is made from these five-pointed junctures, these points in the geodesic, in the dome of the structure of space that's moderating curvature, those five-pointed zones would allow energy to travel easily from the smallest scales all the way up to the largest scales, and we would see what we call self-similar or fractal geometries from everything in the microcosm all the way up to the macrocosm and galactic scales. And this would explain why a nautilus shell looks like a galaxy. And it would also explain different reasons why we have magnetic field ratios at the phi ratio and all the way down to DNA and so on and so forth. And so I started thinking there's got to be bridges all the way through here. There's a way that we can see a unified approach to all of space and all of time and all of matter and all of everything. There is a unifying thing that's going on here. And it has to do with geometry and it has to do with consciousness. Because our chakra system, it cannot be a mistake that our chakra system is made from geometries and that those geometries are connecting us to different levels of awareness in space and time, right? These things can't just be coincidences. They can't just be, you know, errors <laughs> that people made. So at this point, let me tell you a little bit of a story. As I started to dig deeper and really got into the roots of science and our physics of the universe, which originally was philosophy, I found that the early philosophers, they described all the four elements. And they described all of the elements in space, which these days, by the way, we do still describe them. We just call it thermodynamics, hydrodynamics, <laughs> aerodynamics, <laughs> and, and there's a few others uh, that describe fundamentally the dynamic pressures and structures of how matter works, right? We have our own little scientific uh, wording for those things. But the ancient philosophers said that those, fi those elements, fire, air, earth, water, emerged from a fifth element they called the ether. And that the ether was actually a fundamental structure, that these other patterns were outputs of the ether. And the more you travel through space-time and you look at the philosophers that eventually became physicists, you see that the understanding of the ether was an understanding of how planets move, how the earth comes together, how the sun forms, how consciousness and reality and spirituality and everything else get interconnected. But there was a problem because there was a certain religion that really didn't like the idea of philosophers and specifically scientists claiming that there's some kind of connective field everywhere and that the realizations of some of those studies would suggest that some of the witches and their witchcraft actually had some basis in some fundamental reality. And the church also really wanted their connection to God to be the route, the medium. Like, you want to go and connect to source, you go through the church, right? And this approach was pretty unfortunate for the philosophers and the people that eventually became physicists. Even Newton, who many of us think of as just a physicist, just the guy who came up with the idea of gravity, he was actually an alchemist. 
but secretly. He had to hide his alchemist work from the world because if the church had found out about it, he would have been killed like so many of the other philosophers and thinkers before him who had studied these other aspects of our relationship with the universe that was embarking in the church's territory. Now, our studies of the ether over time, as it began to move into physics, scientists were working harder and harder, uh, especially after the development of the scientific method, to get the ether out. Because if they could solve and call it something else, if they could figure out how to explain things without using the ether, then the church would get off their backs. And this became a very, very serious hunt, especially during the late 1800s. There was a massive pressure to break away from this idea of an ether. And the last form of the ether that was being discussed was something called the luminiferous ether. Because the one thing that we couldn't put together, we could get that you know, fire becomes thermodynamics and that, you know, we can explain heat, we can explain pressure systems, you know, we can explain even, you know, using some of Maxwell's ideas, we can explain electrical current to some extent. We can explain some of these things, but what we can't explain is how light moves through space-time. What is light? How does it travel? And there was a sense and a thinking by looking at the stars, by looking at the universe, that light must have some kind of fundamental medium that it's traveling through. It's like a liquid that it's moving through. And this was before Einstein. This was before we even knew that when you have enough gravity around a star, it will bend light. That gravity itself can actually bend and curve light. And all the black hole studies and things that we've had since. And so these guys, Mickelson and Morley, set out to disprove the ether. <laughs> We're going to show you that there is no ether and there's no way for there to be an ether, this thing that's penetrating space and time and etc. And what they did is they set up an experiment in which they had a table with some very sensitive instruments and some lasers set up on it. And they put it on the table and they covered it up and they said that if there's an ether, then as the earth is moving through space, there should be some distortion in this highly sensitive light field where they're detecting because earth is moving through the ether, right? So the ether should affect the movement of this light on this very still table sitting on a planet. There was no fluctuation. Ha ha! No ether! Right? <laughs> they were like, victorious, we have proved away the ether. Da, 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 da. <laughs> but, but wait a second. <laughs> There's kind of a lot of other forces going on right now while I'm sitting on this planet. Not to mention that as I'm moving eastward right now at a, you know, a thousand miles an hour, the air and everything else is going with me. If there was an ether, I'm in it and it's moving. <laughs> and I'm experiencing it as quite still right now, except for this wind. So it was a total fallacy of an experiment, but to this day, it's one of the experiments that nailed the nail in the coffin of the ether. 
The second major thing that supposedly nailed the coffin, the other nail on the other side of the coffin for the ether, was Albert Einstein. When Albert Einstein wrote his theory on special relativity, Einstein provided a mechanism for understanding light. How does light move? How is it relative to other light? And he created all these crazy ideas like, you know, that if you're traveling at near the speed of light in a rocket and you shoot a light beam away from you, you still see it leave you at the speed of light. But if you're sitting on a planet and you're watching that rocket shoot that light beam, it looks like the rocket is going at almost the same speed as the light beam. And this suggests that space and time are a relative phenomenon, that people can actually experience different speeds of time and space, depending on how fast you're going. Now, <laughs> most of these phenomena only get really interesting when you're going close to the speed of light. But they happen regularly. And since that time, we have proved that if you're flying a plane, you will actually, your clock will actually slow down just a little bit. If you take a bullet train, your clock will actually be slower than the surrounding clocks that are not on the bullet train. And the fact that we're hurtling around the sun and hurtling around the galaxy, if you actually had some way to sit still and watch this whole thing moving by, our experiential clocks are moving way slower than whoever it would be that's sitting in a spaceship somehow sitting still <laughs> if the ether wasn't moving. <laughs> but the ether is moving. And so when Einstein discovered these principles about light, they said, well, we don't need an ether anymore because now we understand how light is moving. But it was only within a few years after that, Einstein began to publish his work on general relativity. And as he began to release general relativity, he suggested that space and time curves and moves and bends around objects. He said that gravity around a planet, when strong enough, can bend light around that planet. And his teacher, Lorenz, came into Einstein's little studio office space one day and he says, Einstein, you know, you just proved the ether, right? And Einstein's like, I, I know. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I don't know what to do about this. <laughs> he proved the ether exists. He proved that there's a structure in space-time. He proved that space-time curves and bends and warps and weaves and that that curvature actually affects and influences light. And so Einstein went back out to the public, he went into a press conference, he released a paper called Einstein and, or something in the ether, or uh, what does he call it? Uh, General Relativity and the Ether, I think is what it's called. You can look this up online, Einstein and the Ether, just search that, you'll come up with some really interesting stuff. And there's even a recording of him, like talking and saying that fundamentally, General relativity requires that the forces in space-time have a fundamental structure that's causing the movement of these forces. And therefore, you must have an ether. That if there is a fundamental structure that's affecting light and etc., you've got to have an ether. But guess what happened? Everybody ignored it.
press shut it down. All the other scientists were like, nope, ignoring that one, Einstein. We're moving on. We're into the quantum mechanical age now. Thanks to Niels Bohr and Heisenberg and uncertainties, his uncertainty principle. And Einstein thought these guys were crazy. He thought they were out of their minds. He was like, you're telling me that something is one thing or another, but you don't know unless you observe it? <laughs> yeah, right. And there was another guy who thought he was totally crazy. His name was Schrodinger. You guys ever heard of Schrodinger's cat? So Schrodinger came up with this idea to show how ludicrous the uncertainty principle was. He was like, okay, so you put a cat in a box and then you've got like a little radioactive decay and you don't know whether the radioactive decay has happened or not and you're telling me that the cat in the box is somehow both dead and alive at the same time? This is crazy. This is insane. And Heisenberg was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what's happening. <laughs> it's there and it's not there. It's, you know, we call it virtual particle, you know, or we say that it's uncertain whether it's a wave or a particle. Who knows what it is unless we measure it. And then we know because we measured it. But Einstein and Schrodinger and a lot of other cats at those times were just like, these guys are crazy. <laughs> Let's just keep focusing on the big stuff, <laughs> the black holes, the general relativity, the space-time structure. We'll let them play around, you know, with, with uh, as Einstein said, you know, God doesn't play dice with the universe. That was a direct response to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Because he didn't believe it was random. He didn't believe that it was just one thing or the other. And you're just guessing. And what happened in quantum mechanics is that there were some really, really interesting things that unfolded. I mean, Planck was really the first guy to start this whole quantum revolution. Um, and it was actually Planck, Max Planck and Einstein that got it going because Max Planck said that somehow you in order to understand how much energy is in something, you have to quantize that energy. Otherwise, if you're adding up waves of energy and waves of energy and waves of energy bouncing off inside of something, you end up with infinite energy. But if you quantize it, you can somehow measure, you can quantify the amount of energy. And Einstein, when he published special relativity, came up with the photon. And the photon is the quantized particle of light energy. And so, that got run with by the quantum mechanics guys and they're like everything's a particle everything's a wave everything's a particle everything's a wave and so then you start looking at all of these different structures in space and time from the atom to electrons to you know the proton structure to you know all of these things and eventually uh, we go into the protons and we start looking at, well, what's inside the protons? And is it a particle or is it a wave? What's in the space around it? Is it a particle? Is it a wave? And the deeper we go, the more we have trouble telling if it's a particle or a wave, and the more we realize well, it's got to be either, and it's also got to be both, because otherwise these equations don't work. And you have all these problems that start emerging from this approach, from this perspective. For example, there's clearly some kind of particle structure in the center of an atom. But how is it that the protons in the center of the atom are stuck together? Gravity's not able to work at that scale. This stuff is way too light. 
so we thought. And yet, you know, the atom bomb, when we split an atom, we realized literally how much energy it takes to break apart an atomic nucleus. And it's a massive amount of energy. So there's this huge amount of energy stored in that bond, and yet when you split the nucleus, as soon as it's split, the, the protons freely fly apart. It's not a long distance force, it's right at the barrier. And we have no idea what that force is called, so we came up with the strong force. We said it's really, really strong, and this is how strong it is. No explanation for how it works. We took protons, and we build accelerators, and we blast protons into each other. The protons smash apart, we see shrapnel flying everywhere, and we track the shrapnel, and we say that's what the proton's made of. We call them quarks and leptons, you know, two up quarks and a down quark in some cases, heavier muons, we get different results. We smash together different groups of protons, we get different results. And the interesting thing is, is that we don't understand the forces of how those objects are moving either. So we call it either weak nuclear forces or we call it the color force. And the color force is just our way of describing how is it that these shrapnel pieces inside of a proton hold themselves together. They must be holding themselves together in some way, but we have no idea why. So we just measure how much it is, we call it the color force, and we put it in the textbook. There's no classical understanding for the color force. There's no classical understanding for the strong force. There's no fundamentals for these things at all. And so it's no wonder as I was getting into college, I was going, what the heck? We don't know anything. <laughs> like, we don't know anything about these things. Like, we don't. And this is what's in my textbook? You're kidding me. And like I'm reading these other books by these, these great you know, thinkers that have way, way smarter approaches to things than I'm finding in my textbooks in college, right? And I'm going, geez, we got a real problem here. <laughs> we are way lost when it comes to our physics and our scientific structure. So I kept digging, and my buddy Nassim, he came up with these really interesting ideas. And his first thing that he came up with was that a proton contains a black hole inside. Now, I remember the first time I heard that, and I was like, that's pretty crazy, okay. So it's all black holes, <laughs> like little bitty ones. And I started thinking about it though, and I was like, huh, actually that's a really cool idea though, because if it was a black hole, then you'd have a lot of gravity around it. And maybe somehow that amount of gravity could somehow be the amount needed to hold together a nucleus in an atom. But then, what about this thing about splitting them apart and then you know the force drops off massively and so Nassim said well the proton is spinning he says spinning at the speed of light and I'm like 
okay. So I started running that through my head. All right, if a proton's spinning at the speed of light, then that means you're gonna have mass dilation. So as it's spinning, you know, it's going super fast and basically light speed at the equator. And then you're gonna have an effect of the mass that's inside that object that's gonna be dilated from the mass outside the object, right? Because anytime we accelerate, we're dilating mass. And in this case, you're accelerating in a circle. So it's kind of like a little spaceship. That was the first way that I looked at it. We're looking at these little spaceships. They're spinning at like the speed of light. And so they're dilating their own mass. And so they're not having much of an effect on the surrounding space. And Nassim did an equation and he said, okay, if, if this thing is spinning at the speed of light and it's got a miniature black hole and the, the horizon of that black hole is the radius of the proton, then how fast does the, the force drop off outside of the edge of where it's spinning? And he mapped the drop off of force and it happened to equal, equal almost exactly the Yukawa potential, which is the strong forces fall off. How fast the strong force falls off. And the amount of force, if you have a tiny little black hole and you say that its event horizon is at the distance of the charge radius of the proton, the amount of force equals the strong force. Exactly. Not approximately, exactly. <laughs> Not almost, <laughs> but dead on. <laughs> and this was his first paper uh, on this piece that was called the Schwarzschild proton. This is around the time that Nassim and I started becoming really close friends and I started sharing with him some of my ideas about space-time being a lattice and that the five-pointed stars are actually the connection to gravitational curvature and geodesics. Started showing him how maybe the chakras are actually engagement points to different levels of different fields of force. And we went super deep with each other. We went all the way down the wormhole. And my thinking and his thinking were the same, but he was coming at it from a different way than me. He was coming at it from this idea that space-time and the universe is full of black holes. And that these black holes, these singularities, are the thing that's connecting everything. And he had this idea that a black hole doesn't just form when a star explodes. It's not like they just come into being all of a sudden. His idea is that the black hole's already there. That the spin and the curvature and the flow and the vortices in space-time are already there. And that it's just the mass and the energy moving in alignment with that that gives us what we see as being, oh, there's a black hole there, or oh, there's a star there, or oh, there's a planet there, oh, there's a human there. <laughs> it's the accumulation of the rest of the things around those black holes that are what we experience as mass and energy. I thought this was a great idea, and I said, dude, all right, but you got to figure out you got to solve somehow, you got to prove this 64 tetrahedral structure. You got to solve this fundamental structure. And I said, you know, I'm betting anything that it looks like a geodesic. 
I'm betting it looks like a flower of life, but I'm sure that it's a geodesic. And I'm sure that it's gotta be happening at like super small scale, like Lee Smolin was talking about in you know, Three Roads to Quantum Gravity that I read when I was in high school. It's gotta be a discrete structure at the Planck scale. And the sim was already on it. He's like, oh, it's definitely Planck. It's definitely Planck scale. And he dove in from this point, and I was working on, at this time, creating an academy for unified physics with Nassim called the Resonance Academy, which I highly recommend you guys take courses in. It's super fun, it's super awesome. Um, and Nassim, while we were working on the academy and building the delegate program courses, Nassim completes another amazing paper. And this paper is called Quantum Gravity and the Holographic Mass. And what he does in this paper is he basically solves how many Planck's exists in a proton. And he basically takes the radius, the standardly known radius of the proton, he takes the size of the proton and he basically fills it with Planck's, right? And when I say fills it with Planck's, what he did is he took the Planck length, which is a very, 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 very small size. <laughs> it's the limit of the electromagnetic field. It's the smallest measurable quantity of the electromagnetic field. Now, when I say measurable, I don't mean that we can actually measure it because it's way, way smaller than that. But it's the scale at which if you have a wavelength of light and the wavelength of light gets higher and higher and higher frequency, right? We go up through X-rays, super X-rays, gamma rays, and you keep going all the way to the end of the electromagnetic spectrum, the highest possible frequency. When you get to the frequency that's so high that one wavelength is the Planck length, the energy of that wave of light to its one wavelength size equals something called the Schwarzschild condition. Now there's this guy named Schwarzschild who figured out that if you have a certain amount of energy in a certain amount of space, you get a black hole. You get a singularity, right? Now, this is how we know of, you know, we study black holes. We use Schwarzschild's original equations and adaptations of those equations to study the structure of black holes. But this suggests that if light gets to a certain frequency in a certain scale, the energy of it causes a black hole. And that scale, guess what? It's the Planck length. <laughs> and so Nassim had this idea that maybe at the Planck length, light is actually collapsed in on itself. And that you get these little, what he calls Planck spherical units. Instead of a cube, it's just a little sphere. And this little sphere is literally a quanta. It is a quanta of energy, a quantum, sorry, a quantum of energy, right? And this, this was like the original idea in quantum mechanics is that everything can be broken down and quantized into a fundamental structure. And this is what make, made Planck's work so brilliant. And so what Nassim did is he took those little Planck spherical units and he filled a proton with it. And he says, okay, if you fill a proton and let's say there's no empty space, because there's no space, that space-time is made of this Planck structure, 
then it's completely full. So all these little spheres are overlapping and guess what? They overlap in exactly a flower of life format. They overlap exactly as their independent space is tetrahedral, right? And you fill that up all the way. And then he basically said, well, his equations worked out where if you took the radius of any black hole, take Cygnus X1, for example, and you take its radius, you divide it by that Planck length, Planck spherical units intersecting. And you take uh, the radius and its surface diameter. In other words, the whole spherical surface field, the inside volume to the surface itself, right? And you use that as a ratio. What you discover is the exact solution to Einstein's field equations for that black hole in terms of its energy and mass. So just with its size, you could figure out the exact energy and mass of any black hole. Now, Einstein field equations, if you guys have ever seen those, they're really, 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 really hard. They're extremely complicated. Like, you guys would be sleeping by the time I got through the first, you know, couple letters. <laughs> it's not fun. But this provided a solution where you could do the same calculation on a black hole just by knowing the size of the event horizon and by that calculating the volume of that black hole and looking at the ratio between them and you get the same answer. And any, any middle school student could do that, right? Huge, huge groundbreaking leap. Then what he did is he applied the same equation to the microcosmic field. He applied it to a proton. And in order to apply it to a proton, he flipped the equation and put it by a power of two. Why the power of two? I think it has to do with the fact that quantum mechanics and particularly Planck's constant involves pi, and pi is one half of a circle. It's not a full circle. Tau is a full circle. And so I think the factor of two completes a circle. So you have one full spin or one rotation. Anytime you're dealing with protons, macro, microcosmic things, you have to account for how they're spinning because you're on the outside of a super fast spinning object, right? Now, what he did is he did the calculations starting with the muonic uh, value of, of the proton size, which is hydrogen's proton size. And he plugged it in, he ran the equation for basically what the volume is over the diameter and, or the, the surface area by a power of two. And what you get is basically the output of a proton being a miniature black hole. That the equation fundamentally works at a small scale to a large scale. And then if you throw out the muonic charge of hydrogen and you classically look at basically the energetic structure of the Planck's forming a proton, and you simply look at the, the um, estimated diameter structure and the estimated surface structure, you can output a new radius for the size of the proton, which he ends up doing in this paper. 
and the amount, the size of the proton that he gets is actually suggests that the proton should actually be quite a bit smaller than the proton that we measure in laboratories. And it was shortly after this, they started doing more experiments on the size of the proton to find out if they could get more accurate with it. And they found that the proton was actually supposed to be, or that their measurements were much smaller than any proton they had found before. That they were getting closer to the actual size of the proton with their experiments. And this was on the cover of like Scientific American magazine. I mean, it's like the incredible shrinking proton. <laughs> and this was a huge problem for the standard model because we've used the same estimates for the size of the proton all this time. So this is stuff that I'm sure if you've heard Jamie Janover speak, you've heard him talk about these things. If you've heard Nassim speak, you've heard him talk about these things. And I'm not here to talk to you and regurgitate all of Nassim's work to you. I'm here to take you deeper than that and to go a little bit past maybe what you've heard in those spaces. So where Nassim was able to basically un unfold and unpack some of the nature of this fundamental structure and how it relates to the proton, what he really did was prove a model that there is a fundamental structure in the fabric of space itself. And that when you use these Planck spherical units as the fundamental elements of that structure, you begin to be able to calculate classically what is happening in space and time. And that's where I'm gonna take you now, is understanding what it is that's actually occurring in this flow, in this warp and weave of space-time itself. So let's go back to the proton. You got a little sphere, and let's say this little sphere is spinning at the speed of light, right? Now, one of the things that, you know, Jamie and Asim say is they say this thing is spinning at the speed of light, it's shearing space-time, it's creating this specific effect. Well, I looked at that and I said, well, okay, but it's a sphere. So that means that if it's spinning at the speed of light, it's only at the speed of light at its exact equator. Because on any sphere, the speed of rotation slows down as you go towards the pole. So like on the Earth, you guys may not know this, if you're closer to the North Pole or to the South Pole, you're moving at a slower speed in the rotation of the planet. If you're on the equator, you're going really fast. You're going in the maximum velocity of the Earth rotation. If you go towards the pole, you've got a smaller circle to go on, you're not moving as fast. You're moving through less space in the same amount of time. Right? So I was looking at a proton and I was like, wait a second. That means that it's going slower and slower and slower all the way up to here, right? The top is still moving until you get to the very, very, very top center. And then what? No spin, right? It's the point where it's like right there in the middle, right? Instead of like it's hauling around. And you know these forces that are created by spin. Anybody that's spun around with somebody before, you know this is like major forces, right? And the only point where those forces have this almost transcendent shearing effect on space-time. In other words, the only place where the full, like, you know, here's the thing. Um, I'm going to rewind just for a second and say that 
Einstein said that if you're in a rocket and you're speeding up and you're trying to go to the speed of light, right? That it's gonna take more and more mass and energy to accelerate until you get to the speed of light. And if you're going the speed of light, though, if you're already at the speed of light, mass energy is infinite at that point. And relativity suggests that if you're traveling in a spaceship and other people are watching you from a distance traveling between two stars and you reach the speed of light, your experience on that ship is going to be that as if time has completely stopped. No time will pass for you. Whereas for the person watching you, if you're traveling between two stars that are 10 light years apart, they're gonna watch that light beam take 10 years to get to the other star. So 10 years pass. But the key insight here is that if you're going the speed of light, there is no time that passes. And there's also, at that specific point, you have reached a point of infinite mass energy. And in other words, <laughs> there's no gravity. It's at this point where literally you've somehow transcended the drag of acceleration. You're no longer pressing yourself through space-time. You're now at light speed. You're now at this point where you've crossed this threshold and time is no longer in operation for you. So if the horizon of a proton is spinning at the speed of light, then somehow that ring of energy is existing outside of time. That ring of energy is having no drag on the surrounding space-time. It's literally a bubble in space-time. It's literally floating there without affecting all the surrounding plonks, right? This is why we don't see a proton as a mini black hole having a massive gravitational field. It's why I don't collapse in on myself because I'm full of little space-time stable bubbles spinning at the speed of light. Every atom inside of me is a stable structure of Planck's spinning at the speed of light in balance. But as you move away from that equator, you're going a little bit slower, a tiny fraction less than the speed of light, a tiny fraction less than the speed of light, all the way up until you get to the pole. And that differential of the speed of light to stillness is what actually outputs the force that the proton has on the surrounding space-time. And the force that it has, as those Planck's are spinning as that field of that structure, that geodesic dome structure, geodesic sphere structure is spinning because it is space-time curved in a little ball. That's all it is. From the core to the edge, it's space-time curved in a ball. And it's really curved. In other words, it should have a massive gravitational field because it's a geodesic. Its curvature is huge. I mean, the Earth's curvature is not that big, but you know what? It's keeping me here, isn't it? It's only curved a little bit <laughs> until you get down towards the core, right? But a proton, man, that's tight curvature of space-time. Extremely high gravity. But because it's spinning at the speed of light, very little gravitational effect. But it still has some. And the sum is caused 
by that drag as you go towards the pole. And that drag is pulling other Planck's with the proton. And so as the proton's spinning, you imagine something spinning really fast in water. If you spin it super, super fast, it's gonna actually make bubbles, right? Because it's actually gonna start separating the water molecules all around the place where it's spinning really fast. But then there's gonna also be a greater drag happening in the water, and the water will start to vortex around that point. Now that vortex of water moving around that spinning thing at the, nu at the center, that is the movement of the Planck field that is the movement of space-time around the center of an atom. And the movement of space-time around the center of the atom is a, a movement that is creating force. And the amount of force that's being created there is measured as electrical charge. So what's an electron? If if everything's the same thing, and this is what I'm getting to, if everything is actually just energy, and it's just energy in the quantum field expressing itself in different ways, and this is what, this is what is being, has always been suggested by the ether, is that space-time is full of energy. This is what was suggested in the vacuum catastrophe when they did the plates and they realized, oh my God, space-time is full of massive amounts of energy. If everything is just energy, then the proton is just a bundle of energy that's spinning at a certain rate. It's just in super high coherence. And around that proton, you have just the same exact energy. It's just flowing around it and rotating around it. And that flow and rotation is a charge. And that's just when you have one proton. When you have one proton, you've got a certain field of charge orbiting around it, and you have what we call a one orbital proton. You have hydrogen, muonic hydrogen, in fact. But most of the things that we see and experience, they've got more than one proton. So now, think about this. How do you take a little ball spinning at the speed of light and connect it to other balls spinning at the speed of light? There's not that many really safe ways to do it, is there? <laughs> There's, they're going to have to turn together, right? So that means you can have two balls going like this and you plug them together and they're both spinning together. Or if you've got three balls, well, then two of them have to be like going like this and one of them has to be like connected to one of the other ones and spinning the other direction, right? And think about if they're spinning and they're affecting the surrounding space, how is that pulling on and dragging the surrounding space. And what you start to notice, what I started to notice as I started doing these little crazy ball games, thinking about how four balls rotate together and how five and six, and how do their poles line up? Because they don't have to be polar lined, they can actually be aligned on that other point in the geodesic dome, where those five, other five pointed curvatures are. You can line up one ball here where it's spinning like this and you can line up another ball over here with its pole like this and they're touching at this spot right here right does that make sense and so they're spinning and they're in contact but not in polar contact and as they're moving like this 
that's pulling a bunch of space-time plonks around them. And when you start to look at the shapes that that makes, you get the electron orbitals. You get the explanation for why there's these weird probability vectors of these strange like figure eight looking bubbles and stuff because what you're looking at is the flow of the Planck field around these different nucleuses spinning in different configurations. And we can, only we can only really model electron orbitals up to a few certain atoms, because beyond that, they're so complex. <laughs> we, we don't even know how to model their probability vectors that well yet. <laughs> We're good at it in hydrogen and helium. We can go up like through some of the you know, basic valence objects, but it gets really complex. Now, you know, you get up to an atomic number like 115, you got 115 layers of electrons go, you know, going on with sets of eight in different orbital layers and et cetera. It's because you got space-time is going in this like crazy multi-dimensional flow form. And all those electron fields are actually just the charge fields of the spin that's moving around each one of the protons in that nucleus. And Nassim and Amira just finished a paper recently while I was in Egypt last October that basically solves this equation. They figured out the equation for the electrons and exactly how you get alpha, which is the, the measurement of how electron orbitals spread themselves out from the nucleus of an atom and why they compress. Because they compress into each other. They don't spread out linearly. They compress into each other. And that's because you have more of these protons spinning that are pulling more Planck's in and out of the core itself, pulling it in and around and through the crystalline structure of all of those different protons that are spinning at the speed of light in coherence and conjunction with each other. <laughs> now, by the way, they're not always in coherence. Sometimes we're able to see one of these atoms come into a brief state of coherence, we see the element and then it blows apart. That's because those protons can't stay spinning in that structure with each other. They just fly apart. <laughs> They're not stable. So there's only certain configurations of these little balls spinning at the speed of light in contact with each other that actually are coherent enough to stay stable, to stay, stay, to, to stay stable. <laughs> so that's cool, right? And then what you start to realize is that, okay, if you've got all these balls spinning and you've got this field of force spinning around it, you're also going to only have other kinds of little bundle crystals with their own fields of force spinning around it that you could stick together and then they start sharing those fields of force, right? So when certain protons are spinning in a certain way, there's geometrically, it leaves a gap in the field where if you have other Planck fields spinning and they get close to that spot, they'll get sucked into the gravitational vortex. In other words, they'll get sucked into the spin field of what's moving around those protons. And suddenly, now you have two atoms two nuclei that are in a bond with each other and sharing. Now, when you 
work with atoms that are a lot less complex, like oxygen and hydrogen, you know, H2O, for example, it's pretty simple to see. You've got oxygen, and oxygen is this fairly complex nuclei with a fairly complex field, but one which has two very open lobes in its orbital structure. And guess what? Those open lobes can be filled by hydrogens coming in. And when hydrogens come in, they sit right there in those two open lobes and they all dance together. So all the plonks that they're moving around the hydrogens, they just start spinning in and out of the field. And they're just doing these like, it's like rave dances as molecules, <laughs> right? And they're, that's, they're just doing that and they're playing. And that's why, you know, and then that field with water, they tend to also get into these structures together where they get into these little five pointed structures and they stabilize with each other. They get into these dances where their shared coherence field, their shared spin field is in alignment, right? And so what we're looking at here is basically at a fundamental level, <clears throat> understanding the electron, understanding the proton, and therefore understanding the basic materials that make up everything that we see, everything. Now, some people ask, what do you think is the question they ask? I have protons, electrons, what else we got? Where's the neutron, right? How come the neutron always gets left out? Come on, Nassim, talk about the neutron, dude. <laughs> so the neutrons, what is a neutron, right? Why, why do we have this idea of a neutron? Well, what's interesting is that somehow when you've got a nucleus of these balls, let's just call them balls for right now. You have these little energy balls. These energy balls are spinning together. Well, the amount of charge, positive electrical charge, that is put off by these little energy balls, we only know by how much negative charge, in other words, electrical field, is in drag around them. So we know and understand the amount of charge being put off by the electron field, right? That, that is the balance point. And for some reason, the field that's moving around is only moving with generally half the charge of what's happening inside of that nuclear structure, which suggested that one of those nuclear structure objects, like it's, you have a little two ball nucleus, that maybe one of them's neutral and the other one's positive. And then the surrounding field is balancing with that one positive, because that's the amount of force translation, right? Of course, if you've got two balls flowing together, they're in coherence, they're also sharing a certain amount of the field around them, right? So if I got two balls spinning together, and I've got a field rotating around them, I've got this amount of field, if I had one ball, it would be almost the exact same amount of field. But I just have two balls, they're both spinning together, and I still have a field rotating around that, right? Now, if I split one of those balls off, as we say, splitting off the neutron, you split off the neutron, and in picoseconds, it's a proton. 
In other words, it doesn't stay a neutron. We say that it instantly decays, instantly, into a proton. We have never, ever, ever, even once, observed a neutron floating around in space by itself. They don't exist. There's just a proton. And we've quantum mechanically calculated that if we bust those two things apart and we separate the neutron in that picosecond, there must be a release of a specific field of force, which is a Z boson, and there's a slight decay that is releasing a subtle ripple. And we basically see a tiny, tiny ripple of energy. And that tiny ripple of energy is what we describe as the decay process for that neutron as it becomes a proton, right? But why do we have to call that a Z boson? Like, can't we just look at it as like a frequency ripple that occurs when you do a split? Or like when you're literally like separating something out of a nucleus? There's a huge amount of energy going on. Like, we're gonna somehow, we're gonna particleize that. That's the Z boson. You know, like that's the one right there. Just like the thing that made the gravity. That's the glue on. It's gotta be glue that holds the things together. And we've created this whole map of all of these different bosons and leptons, which everybody gets taught are elementary basic particle structures, right? This is like the elementary particle set. But here's the thing, we're going back to the origins again. Who says they're a particle? Nobody. Nobody knows that they're particles. There's no reason for a gluon to be a particle. It's a force, right? We can suggest that it's occurring in a specific position and measure the position of where that force is being released. And then we call that position the particle. But if we measure the wave, we measure the angular momentum, the field's movement, we see a wave. We see an energy field moving and rippling. Now, Let's apply that same rationale to the Planck spherical unit. Thank you, Nassim. Great idea, by the way. But is it a particle? Who says it's a particle? It's a wavelength of light. It's a certain distance wavelength of light. And it just happens to be kind of stable at that size, shape, whatever. But it's all intersecting. So why, why does it have to be spheres and eggs? They're just literally intersections. They're like threads. And in Asim's quantum gravity and the holographic mass, he suggests that every Planck that is on the surface of a proton is connected to other Planck's around the universe by wormhole networks. Now he's not the only guy that thinks this. There's some other guys that postulated a micro wormhole theory as well that suggests that maybe subatomic particles are hairy <laughs> and that their hairiness is actually all of these wormholes coming off of them. But where, where are the wormholes? What are the wormholes? What are these hairs? If we start to see space-time itself as a fabric, you know we say the fabric of space-time, right? If we start to actually see it that way, as a superfluid fabric, what if the threads 
of the fabric of space-time itself are the wormholes. What if all of the light that forms this empty space is entangled with all of the other light? Now, what is this entanglement? Right? Let's get down to the roots of that one. Entanglement. We have these different studies and different experiments in which we notice that if a certain amount of space and a certain amount of energy has the same vibration in it as another space, they become what we call quantum coherent. So we develop a quantum coherence between two spaces. And when there's this quantum coherence, we say it is entangled, that the fields are entangled. Now we notice this most when we have particles that are together, vibrating together in the same field, and then we separate those particles. And then we notice that if those particles had a certain kind of relationship with each other, and we separate them by vast distances, and we change the spin on one of them, the other one changes too. Suggesting that from the origin point where they were together, in that separation, they maintained a pipeline of connection. What Einstein and Rosenbridge would call an Einstein-Rosenbridge. Right. A wormhole. And this, this bridge that forms this entanglement can allow information to pass from one side to the other. Now, strangely enough, these kinds of entanglements can happen in all sorts of ways. We noticed that we can take DNA and shine a light through it into water and actually change the structure of that water to actually match the structure of the DNA. Light can take a structure and encode it into another structure. One of your homework pieces, if you've never looked at it, is to do some research and look up DNA teleportation. What we found is that we can teleport the structure of DNA, literally, and actually pull DNA out of water <laughs> just by entangling that water with a space where DNA was before, right? Information can be connected to and entangled between two points in space-time. So what is the entanglement? Well, if we get down to quantum coherence, what we're talking about is that a vibration here is the same as a vibration here. That this vibration is connected to this vibration. That if this quantum field matches this quantum field state, there is a natural entanglement that is occurring. Now, I want you to just suck, like soak that in for just a second. If all of space-time is made of energy, and that energy is vibrating. And if any time there is an exact similarity in a state or field of energy that's vibrating a certain way with other spaces that are vibrating that same way and that that creates a quantum coherence, 
In other words, it activates a wormhole, it activates the possibility of inter information transference. Then I want you to think about for a second what happens when I have a thought that is in your head also. If I have the same idea as you, What do we know about ideas? There, we have a brain, right? Science says, we have a brain. Our brain is filled with electromagnetic fields, you know? And this electromagnetic field has different coherent charge sets. And then we have certain kinds of electromagnetic signals that stimulate the connections between axons and dendrites. And we have these little microtubules that hang out between the axons and the dendrites. And those little microtubules are tiny little quantum structures, and they encode the specific states of the electromagnetic charge passing from one axon to one dendrite. Therefore, a series of those in specific conjunction, all happening at the same time, is an idea, right? So you're telling me that basically, as I'm gonna do it like Nassim would, so what you're saying is, Basically, if my brain does the same thing as your brain, then we're in coherence. Now, what about feelings? We've got glands. Our glands resonate. They put off little charges. If my gland resonates in a certain specific way, putting off a certain charge, releasing a certain amount of chemicals into my body, there is a specific, if we take away gland and we say bundle of Planck <laughs> structures in a certain geometry, going blup, blup, blup from a field of light transmitted through pipelines of light that I call nervous systems to release electrostatic chemical structure, I say chemicals, but that are actually just a specific arrangement of bonds of this fundamental field spinning and vibrating in a very specific way through channels in my body that I say is water, but is actually just a conduit field of certain vibrational structures that is H2O, which is a pattern of this fundamental energy that allows transference of certain kinds of information, <laughs> then I could be having the exact same release pattern going on in my body as you do and us do it at the same time. Literally, when my heart opens and I feel connected and I feel a feeling of gratitude and of love and of appreciation for beauty, for the magic, for the insanity of me standing up here describing to you the nature of the universe itself, that if you're open enough to it, a little part of you might oscillate in just the same way. And you're like, I feel you, dog. Straight up, I feel you, man. You know, you walk into... You walk into that room 
and somebody's just been really laying out some intense stuff. And you walk into that room and you hit this field. You walk into the charge field that's resonating through the room. And as you move into it, it oscillates inside of you. And immediately your body begins to recognize that oscillation pattern. And you have two choices. One is you resist it and you choose to recognize, ah, you resist it or choose to recognize that this is a resonance being created by the people in the room and you're feeling and responding to theirs. Or three, you take it on and you begin experiencing it as your own because you're resonating with it and then you're entangled with it. So if the vibe gets heavier from there and goes more intense from there, guess what you're going to? How many of you people know what I'm talking about in terms of empathy? You've been in a partnership, right? Your partner is upset. And maybe you start out being like, okay, it's cool, they're upset, <laughs> no big deal. So what's going on, tell me about it. And then as they share with you what they're upset about, it's really upsetting to you too. And maybe it's upsetting to you because you're upset with yourself because what they're upset about is what you did and you're mad at yourself, but now you're like, dang it. And now you're feeling like they are because you're entangling with them in their thoughts and their emotions and their feelings. And then you're in the same charge. Oh, and you're like, no, I didn't want to go down that road. I don't want to be here right now. I'm mad at myself. Ah, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> or you stay with it and you're like, this is freaking intense. Okay, we're gonna breathe. Okay, we're gonna shift this field. It's all gonna be okay. We're gonna go there together. All right, you're gonna go with me? Okay, because we're too entangled. I can't just like go there and leave you behind. And I can't just do it mentally because we got this, you know, chemical, emotional body thing going on. So we're going together, yeah. Okay, I believe in you, all right. Okay. <laughs> and you're like, okay, recovery. <laughs> we almost went into the wormhole. <laughs> we almost got, you know, chewed up and spit out. But we met on the event horizon. We spun into coherence. We found the spot where we can both be feeling this and be okay with it. And then, it changes. Then things start to move. Energy starts to shift. So there's a fundamental physiological interconnection that's going on between us and everything and everybody all the time all around us. Why? Because we're swimming in this immersed field of resonating light. And this light is filling all of this space. Now, I'm not just talking about visible electromagnetic frequencies. I'm talking about the Planck field itself, the quantum vacuum, which is a field of light. It's a crystalline field of light. Now, some of us, <clears throat> have had an interesting experience at one or another points of our life in which we maybe took something 
that uh, like a fungus grows on the ground. Or maybe we took this other thing that's, you know, some great crazy guy came up with. Um, that's the specific molecular structure that when it goes into your brain, it creates some really interesting effects. And, or maybe we went into a ceremony, a healing ceremony, or sat in a teepee or did these things. And when we went into a certain kind of state in our bodies, we actually began to see with our eyes or at least with our inner eye and our mind or our mind was able to put on the surrounding space in front of us this lattice of energy. We literally began to see the crystalline patterned structure around us. Now, if you've had this experience, you also would notice that when you look at a certain tree or you looked out on this field of golden grasses, you would notice that there's all of these patterns in it. All these fractal self-similar patterns. Now, normally when your brain is looking at that, it's approximating a lot. So it's making a wash. It's taking in all that light signal and it's kind of like, it's kind of like doing rough painting. It's like, okay, yeah, generally there's some gold there and there's generally some greens there and there's generally some browns there. And so it's like all this different stuff and you're looking at one or another part. But if you just sat and allowed your consciousness to open and your mind to open just a little bit, in other words, you started to receive more of the information that's there, you suddenly begin to notice that there actually is all of these incredible geometric patterns hidden right there in what looks like a random field of wheat. Because those wheat blades actually space themselves out geometrically when they're sprouting out of the ground. And the leaves on the tree space themselves out in specific geometric patterns. The cells in your hand, the lines on your fingers that you're like, whoa, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> These things have specific geometries and we don't recognize it a lot of times. Now, here's something that gets even more interesting. How many people have had an experience of synchronicity? So, do you think that synchronicities only happen once in a while when you're in a super high vibe state? No. Why do you think no? You're, you say it's always present. It's always there, right? Why do you think that? How do you know? Something, something tells you that, right? Something. You can feel it. It's like there's already this pattern that's so amazing and so perfect in space-time itself that's unfolding. You just don't generally notice it. But when you somehow are breathing enough, and you start to feel a little bit tingles, you do some Tai Chi, you know, you get your yoga on, right? And you start opening up 
the electromagnetic channels in your body and your body starts connecting to the surrounding space-time more. You start picking up all the energy coming off of the earth itself. You start soaking in the water that you've been drinking. You start accelerating the process of how the different nutrients and food in your body are being utilized to produce energy inside of you. The signaling in your brain starts to accelerate and all of a sudden you start seeing things a little bit more clearly. You start to feel, oh, wait a second. There is an answer here. There's a puzzle here that's unfolding. And then you just happen to be like, oh, dang it, I forgot my thing inside. You go back inside and you're like, gosh, I'm so glad that I remembered this. It takes you an extra few minutes. And then you go to the store and you're in the store and you're walking out of the store about to leave and at that moment a friend you haven't seen in five years is walking in and you you don't even think about the fact that if you hadn't wasted those five minutes finding your keys that you lost you would have walked out of that store and you'd never run into them but maybe you're charged up enough that when you see them, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> yes, <laughs> boom, I'm on track. The little mistakes, the little things that we do, the little guidance, the little bit of triggers, what is that? What are those things? If we are immersed in a super fluid field, if we are surrounded by the force, as they say in Star Wars, then you can feel the force. You can sense it all around you. It can guide you and inform you. It can teach you if you're willing to listen because you're not alone. If you have questions, There are answers traveling, resonating throughout the field, all over the place. Some of us, even, have gone out at night with questions, looking at the stars. And sometimes you're open enough and asking those questions with a heart that's so open, with a mind that's so open, and a being that's so open that all of a sudden, you notice the stars start moving. <laughs> and then they get brighter. <laughs> and then they turn 90 degrees and then flash at you. <laughs> and you're like, whoa. And you suddenly get an answer to your question in your head. Now, did the answer just pop out of nowhere? Or maybe there was somebody out there who got your question and decided to send you the quantum coherent field of the answer. They gave you the package, <laughs> passed you the football. Now, whether or not you have any concept or any belief that there may be beings out there on other planets, well, hold on, I'm gonna pause right there first. 
if you're not sure, when I was in high school telling stories, studying physics, exploring all this stuff, they thought that having planets around stars was an extremely rare thing. It was super rare. Like an exoplanet? Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's maybe one in a billion stars, right? Then I was in college and they're like, well, there might be a few more than that. <clears throat> and then I was like out of college and I was like going to Burning Man for my first time. I was like, okay, there's a lot more than that. And then it's like, okay, are you gonna... and now they don't think there are any stars that don't have planets. In fact, they think that it's more likely that every star has a whole series of planets. And that actually the likelihood of Goldilocks planets is probably more like 50%. In other words, the planets that are not too hot, not too cold, <laughs> just right, just the right bake. You know, you get liquid water. Awesome. Yeah. That half, half of the stars in our galaxy are likely to have planets to have liquid water. Do you know how many that is? Now we used to think there was a hundred billion stars. Well, now we think there's 200 billion stars or more in our galaxy. That means there's a hundred billion planets with water, people. Holy crap. Now, like, <laughs> and then of course you look at ancient history and this is not a galactic workshop, so I'm not going all the way there with you. You guys have to come back and see me again. We'll do another one. I love doing galactic workshops. But you know, you look at the ancient cultures and like every single ancient culture on the planet is like, oh yeah, how'd we get our stories? Gods and goddesses came down from heaven and they showed us stuff. <laughs> Dogons in Africa to the Mayas talking about the four corn people from the four corners of the river in the sky, which is the Milky Way galaxy, to you know, the Egyptians and the ways they record the different gods and the ways those gods come down and taught them different things to the Chinese and the Japanese and some of the oldest Taoist systems which talk about basically stepping star structures that come down and open up the meridian systems of the body and, and that all the martial arts have been unlocked through this like spiritual connection with the stars to African tribes and traditions to South American to North American tribes the blue star Kachina to you know the Lakota's white buffalo calf woman to I mean pick a tradition <clears throat> just pick one you know, you got the Tuatha de Danan, my people, my tradition, my family, like going back. And the Tuatha de Danan were said to have arrived on the Irish Isles and the British Isles riding clouds. And the original story that they said was that they came from three islands in the sky. And they brought with them four sacred gifts. And these four sacred gifts were a magical cauldron a spear that if you took it into battle, you couldn't lose a battle. A really, really special stone 
that had very powerful effects and that was often kept in a very secretive place inside of something that contained its power. Sound like the Ark, maybe? And the Sword of Light of Nuada, which if you follow its trail, ends up being called Caliburn later on, and then eventually Excalibur. And what are these? Cauldron, chalices, hearts in the playing cards, or cups in the tarot? Staves, rods, clubs in the playing cards, right? And in the tarot, the spear. Also thought to be later the spear that pierced Jesus, that you would never lose a battle. They just thought it was the spear that pierced Jesus because Jesus is thought of like the one guy who ever made miracles happen in the world for a large population of people, right? But to them, different spear. The stone, which is pentacles, is diamonds in the playing cards, right? Represents the fall. By the way, spring, summer, clubs, fall, cups, spring, hearts, summer, clubs, staves, fall, the harvest, the diamonds, the pentacles, etc. And winter, the swords, the spades, the uh, yeah, swords, spades, etc. Cups in, uh, in tarot and in playing cards. And that's winter. And the spade also looks like the winter tree, right? The club looks like the full summer tree, right, etc. So these magical traditions came from people from the stars, apparently, who then became the Druids and became the Celts and so on and so forth. And then where did all their knowledge go? So much of it is lost. But if you look at their teachings, just the teachings of this one people, what do they say? They say that the elements are threads and that the threads weave together. And that when the threads are woven in a certain way, it creates a standing field, something that in English we call a sigil. And this standing field, the sigil, contains the energy, it contains the power of the intention behind it. And that thing then can be represented and share that energy and share that light. I mean, what they were talking about is logos, basically. <laughs> but that logos, that any symbol that represents you actually can inside of its pattern store information that a geometry itself, literally just a shape, because what does a shape do? A shape reflects light. A shape moves light. So if you have a geometry on your hat, on your shirt, on whatever, you're moving light in a certain way. And the way that that light is then moving, bouncing off of that thing, is of course going to bring information into the field. Right? So this is why what you wear is kind of important. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh shit, what am I wearing? <laughs> Just what symbols do I have on? <laughs>
but it's a natural thing, right? We represent our tribes with our symbols. Like he's representing Led Zeppelin right now. And actually representing that, bringing that field is bringing a connection with hundreds of thousands of people that have freaking rocked it so hard to Led Zeppelin, which is why you feel good wearing that shirt. Cause you can actually feel that little connection. It's so subtle, but it's there. And it's there in that shirt when you pick it up. You know, when you have certain kinds of things with certain kinds of symbols on them, you may not consciously grasp or know the depth and the impact of what it is that you have. And until you're sitting there like tripping and you're trying to pick what to put on and you're like, oh my gosh, which one? Oh gosh, this shirt. Oh, yes. I remember I was in my Burning Man tent one time, exposure here, <clears throat> and I just like, I was tripping on some LSD that a friend of mine gave me. And I'm like looking at my clothes and I'm pulling out the things and I'm like having the memory of the, the meaning and the depth of this one shirt to me. And it's like, okay, that's not the right one right now, but I can't just put it away. I need to put it right here. And then, oh, this thing, like, what does that even mean? But then I'm like, oh, oh, it's so tattered because because it was a gift and because I, I wore it so many times and like, you know, it's like this feeling, all the charge, all the energy of all the connected moments to that thing, like we're in it. And spaces also provide to us this connected field, charge, this lineage for us. The, the, the earth itself the stones and the plants and the ground holds the field of memory so that when we walk back into spaces that we haven't been in in a long time, we're actually refreshed by the connection that we have to that land from when we were there before. We pick up the same frequencies, the same fields. We pick up the memories embedded in space itself. And so we begin to realize that it is impossible for there to be anything like AI because nothing when it comes to intelligence can be artificial. That space-time and consciousness are actually completely interwoven with each other that our consciousness, in the way that we think, in the way that we feel, we are simply traveling through different states, different geometries of thought. We are creating different containers of thought which then have different charges of frequency inside of them. Basically, it's a geometry and it's vibrating. Can't get more simple than that. There you have a thought and a feeling. And that specific geometry and vibration, guess what, has a connection to a specific part of your body. And the specific part of your body that it connects to is connected through one of your chakras to one of your gland systems, which then provides your physiological structure with the chemical charge that backs up the thought and the feeling vibrationally. And so you have this interconnection 
between what's going on electrochemically in your body and vibrationally in your field and structurally in your mind with space-time itself. It is space-time doing that. It's not like you're doing it to space-time or space-time's doing it to you. The answer is and has always been as above, so below. When we think about spirituality, when we think about ascension, we often think about reaching these higher frequency states where we are able to see more of what is truly going on. But do we ever really leave? Or do we just more deeply permeate the space that we are in with who we are? When we ascend, are we trying to vanish from the physical? Or are we learning how to be more deeply embodied and expanded in the truth of who we are? Space-time itself holds the Akashic record. The memory of all that has ever been is the trail that our planet has left traveling around the sun, spiraling through the galaxy. It is its own form of DNA. We are riding at the tip in the head, in the mouth, in the eyes of a dragon. And the dragon's body goes back in time, back to the beginning of life on this planet, back to the moments in which the black hole in one proton began to aggregate with other protons and other protons and other protons spinning together, making a larger and larger and more coherent field until it began to form a planet. And the dynamics, all the structures and all the stuff, and then all the life and then all the, and then all the self-awareness. And then we're right here. <laughs> here I am. But I'm not from here. I just saw this spot where it was like, whoa, it's doing something really cool right now. Like, look at all the ice on the poles and everybody's all hanging out together. Let's go, guys, come on. <laughs> Let's go, let's hang out with them. I think we're gonna do a big upgrade. It's gonna be fun. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> no, realization time, okay. The fall of the Tower of Babel, the water has spread, and now all the languages of the planet must bloom because Gaia just broke open her throat chakra. Oh. And then here we are now, 13,000 years after that, and what's happening? You know, we got, we've got languages all over the planet, but what are we trying to do now? We're trying to unite them all back together as one language. We're trying to reconnect, and the answer is not English. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the one language. <laughs> the one language is the language of consciousness itself. 
It's the light language. What is the light language? The light language is the understanding of space-time itself. The light language is the language of memory and consciousness. The light language is the essence of our being and who we are expressing itself through resonance and learning how to give and receive that resonance with each other. There is so much more that we're saying besides what I'm shaping with my mouth. And we are at a great juncture point of this planet where we can, we can transcend the process of self-destruction by going through an, an internal death, an internal letting go of what has kept us so separate from each other. And by letting that part die, we begin to be born into a new state of resonance and coherence and awareness and acceptance of each other. We begin to reweave the sacred hoop and we come into our birthright, which is to be planetary stewards with each other, to be unified, to be one people on this planet and to go forth, explore new worlds and new civilizations, and to boldly go where no man or woman has gone before. This is what is possible for us now. We are in the state of crossing. The technologies are emerging, but they require us to own the spiritual connection that we have with space-time and science itself. If we are to travel the stars, do you think we're going to use radar technology to guide a starship halfway across the galaxy? No, we can't because light is too slow, my friends. Unless you are already at the speed of light yourself, which you are. Your consciousness is already at that speed. Therefore, the time it takes for you to project your consciousness to the Pleiades is zero. You can be there right now. You can be anywhere on this planet right now. And if you don't believe me, pick somebody that you care really deeply about right now. Pick somebody in your life that you care really deeply about. And I want you to just feel them for a second and how much you care about them and how much you, what you feel for them, how you think of them. And I want you to right now be with them and tell them something that's important for you to tell them. Something that you 
maybe haven't said to them, or maybe it's been a while. And I want you to give that gift to them. Give that feeling, give that expression, that offering to that person. And thank them right now for being in your life. Thank them for receiving this offering. And feel what that feels like for them right now. that little bit of quantum coherence, that little bit of communion will make a ripple. It will make a ripple because you're not far from them. You're not far from anyone you have a connection to, ever. And it doesn't matter when you had that connection. It can go all the way back in time. When did you start being? Do you remember? Was it when you popped out of your mom? Or when you were in the womb? Was that when you started being? Who are you? What are you? How many people have you connected with? In your being? What skills have you developed in your time being? If you could just remember and reclaim all of the trails of all of the energy and all of the consciousness that you have left going back in time just in this body, if you could just remember everything that was ever told to you, you know how much you would know right now? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, there are some people that have this gift and some of them are, have very interesting ways of dealing with this moment because they are absorbing so much all the time. And they're trying to figure out how to anchor it. So can you receive more of who you are and stay anchored in who you are now. If you spent 30 years practicing how to cook in another time, in another body, why should you take 30 years practicing now? Just remember it. If you ever worked with a sword, battled or did sword play in another life, why should you have to train and relearn it all right now? Just get the same sword. Pick it up and remember. The question of who you are and how old you are and what you are is something that I invite you to ponder for the rest of your life. Because there's nobody that can ever tell you the answer to that. I can only tell you that from my experience, allowing myself to be more than I thought I was has given me immense gifts in my life. I remember and I teach and I have learned 
what I've learned, to share what I share because I've accepted more of who I am. And I want you to also just remember that there is so much more in this field of resonance that is ready to inform you, ready to guide you, ready to help you with any problem, any question that you have, anything that you're struggling with, than you can even imagine. And you could probably imagine a lot of assistance, but I guarantee it's more than even what you think. We are surrounded by help. We are surrounded by assistance. And we forget that. We feel alone. We feel separate. We feel lost. We doubt ourselves. We doubt who we are. We doubt each other. Sometimes we look at each other and we see our fear. We see our judgment. We see the way that others have judged us. And sometimes we're afraid to express the truth of what we're feeling and who we are right now because we don't want to be judged again. Whether that's judgment for being wrong or judgment for being egotistical because we're right. And so we are walking this fine line to find out how much of ourselves we can share that other people are comfortable with. And that's okay. Because where that comes from is compassion. Because we actually care about how other people are gonna feel. We actually care how they're gonna receive what we have to give. And so sometimes we have to be patient and realize that the people around us, our friends, colleagues or partners, they may not get us right now. And that's okay. But if you never express the truth of who you are, if you never give them a chance, then it's you that is judging them. And this happens almost as often, where we are actually judging another person as being ready or not for the freaking epic, awesome, crazy, ridiculously goofy, silly, <laughs> sexy, magical <clears throat> person that we are. And so this is the dance of life. It's testing the boundaries. It's testing what is it, what is it that it requires to have integrity, to show up with the truth, to actually be in the moment of an experience and also somehow account for all the other people that are gonna be affected by that experience and somehow navigate through to the other side of it and, and somehow account for everything that just happened and what is personal, what's private, what's mine, what's yours? Can, it, can I not have an experience that's just mine? Am I accountable to every person in my life for everything that I go through? Yes or no? Do we know the answers to this? Or are we exploring this as the frontier of our consciousness? Of getting to know what it means to be both immersed in a shared field where we are telepathic, where we are connected, where we are one, we are unified, and we're also an individual. And there's some information 
that's on the inside of my event horizon that actually doesn't belong to any of you. It's mine. It's me. It's, it's who I am. And that part of me, I have to learn to accept and be okay with too. And hold that field. The indigenous people call it holding your thunder. And the holding of thunder is about getting to know that part of you that's going to have your own experience and your own path and your own reflections. And they may or may not be right and appropriate for everybody around you at all times. But if people around you are seeking to know that part of you, then there is an emergence happening in which you can share something that resonates an understanding, a wisdom, an experience that will allow somebody else to bloom along with you. And this can be a really, really beautiful and powerful experience to have. When the deepest places inside ourselves become capable of resonance with other people around us. And we realize that our shadows are not just our own. Our pain is not just our own that some of the things we think are just our own are also just other people's too. And although we cannot ever truly know what they've been through, we can resonate with them. And we can heal with them. We can grow with them. Come into greater awareness of ourselves with them together. And this is beautiful. So, that's kind of what we're doing. <laughs> and <clears throat> I think eventually the academic train, you know, <clears throat> which has to like lay things into textbooks, you know, and like build it in. And the teachers with tenure are like, I spent 40 years understanding this thing. You're telling me it's not the thing? You're wrong. That is the thing, because I've been spending 40 years studying this thing. And like, yes, I know you did, but there's also like 5,000 years of study that came before your 40 years of study that you're not accounting for. So it's okay. I know you did your best. It's okay. And the thing is that 40 years you spent studying that thing, that thing has a purpose. It has a purpose. Everything is part of the pattern. We may not see it. We may not know exactly what it is and how it fits, but I promise you, string theory has a reason. Uncertainty principle absolutely has a reason. Think about all of the spiritual conscious communities who when they realized that quantum mechanics was talking about that matter collapses into a certain state because of consciousness, realized that's how manifestation happens, is we're affecting space-time. Now, even if that specific principle that it's, it's caused by uncertainty in quantum mechanics, even though that piece is wrong, the greater understanding that we have an influence on space-time is correct. And so even though there's a misunderstanding, the misunderstanding is leading to a greater understanding. So we're going to get there. And I pass you these keys and these tools today 
of unified physics and the force and our beings immersion in space and time because I want you to be an adventurer. I want you to explore your connection with space-time. And maybe you've done that in parts of your life. Maybe you've spent some really deep time exploring your relationship with your field and this field around you. But I want to re-inspire you to take some time to get back to that. And I want to inspire you to do it because I want to do it too. Believe it or not, I have major time periods where I lose parts of myself because my focus is going here or it's going here and I'm working on one thing or another, just like everybody. And sometimes what it takes to go back and reclaim the depth of your communion with things means you want to be in a space with a community, with people, and begin to open up an exploration of that again. So I invite you to explore with me. Explore with each other. Explore with your friends. Get to know how your consciousness influences the field around you. And get to know, again, how you can listen more deeply to the memory that is encoded in the lands around you, in your body, in space-time itself. Get to know what songs are being sung by the stars and what symphonies are exploding from the trees and plants and animals all around us. Spend some time listening deeply as you have for me today. Thank you so, so much for listening and for your presence, for your attentiveness, for soaking it in and being present with me. I'm honored to be here with you now and always. Thank you. Thank you.